This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. Do you long to understand the Bible in a deeper way? The ESV Study Bible was created by a diverse team of leading Bible scholars and teachers and features a wide array of study tools, including extensive study notes, topical theology articles, Bible character profiles, and more, making it a valuable resource for serious readers, students, and teachers of God's Word. Pick up a copy of the ESV Study Bible wherever Bibles are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast. In spring 2023, TGC released five new debates as part of the Good Faith Debates video series featuring prominent Christian thinkers discussing some of the most divisive issues facing the church today. On today's episode, we're featuring a debate between Matthew Sorens and Darren Guerra on the topic of immigration laws. Pastor Jim Davis from Orlando Grace Church moderates this debate. Let's listen in. Well, welcome to TGC's Good Faith Debates. This is a series of conversations designed to help you learn about and engage in issues of contemporary life and culture that might be confusing, might be challenging, and might even be divisive or polarizing. My name is Jim Davis. I'm pastor of Orlando Grace Church, and it is a privilege to be able to moderate these debates. Today, the topic is immigration. Immigration is obviously a charged issue. It is a political issue, but it's also a gospel issue. So we want to talk about it. And today I am here with Matthew Sorens, who is, and I have to read this because it's, it's a long one, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief, and Dr. Darren Guerra, who is a professor of political science at Biola University. Thank you both for joining us here today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. Well, Matthew, we can start with you. We would love to hear your perspective on the question, should we have tougher immigration laws? Yeah, I will get to that question, but I do wanna say just up front, first of all, thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here and great to be with you, Darren. Um, I think that question of, of governmental policy is super important. But sometimes I think as Christians, we only ever get to that question and we skip over a question that, you know, certainly biblically, there's some prudential um, wisdom that we can draw from the scriptures that might guide our thinking about public policy. But most of what the Bible has to say about immigration and immigrants is more to the question of how do we treat our immigrant neighbors. So I won't spend all my time there, but I do just want to mention that those biblical principles, I think, are really important. You know, it's loving your neighbor as yourself, which it's pretty clear from the Good Samaritan story that that could include a a vulnerable traveler of a different ethnicity or a different religion. It's uh, a sense of solidarity with the global church. And it's worth noting that in the U.S. context, at least, it's hard to measure people's hearts, but most immigrants self-identify as some sort of Christian background. And many of them certainly have bring a vibrant Christian faith with them that is a gift to the mission of, of God in the United States. Some of them are even persecuted for their faith in Christ, and that's how they end up as refugees to the United States. 
Uh, and then the flip side of that is there are others who don't yet know Jesus. There's a, a missional opportunity associated with migration. With the, the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations. Certainly we should be doing that in the ends of the earth, but we've missed something really profound if we don't notice that God and his sovereignty has brought people from the ends of the earth to this context in the U.S. where we are blessed with religious freedom, where we have the opportunity to share our faith freely and individuals who might never have encountered the hope of the gospel in their own country can either receive that or to reject it. We respect their religious freedom to do either, but it is a way that God is at work, and I don't think that's an accident. In Acts 17, it talks about how God is, is sovereign over the movement of people towards an end in verse 27 that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Uh, I, I, I start with that because I think sometimes so many Christians have not actually recognized immigration as a, a gospel opportunity. In fact, Lifeway Research did a poll that was out just recently. Less than half of self-identified evangelical Christians say that they think of the arrival of immigrants to their community as an opportunity to introduce people to Jesus. And I suspect that's because for a lot of evangelicals, not all, but many of us start with that question of policy. Should we have tough policies or lenient policies? And then never get to the other questions of how do we actually interact with our immigrant neighbors? That said, as we do interact with our immigrant neighbors and in a ministry context, and that's the work that we do at World Relief where I get the privilege of working, um, it doesn't usually take very long to realize that policies are important and they have very profound impacts on people and on our society as a whole. And I do think that there's some biblical wisdom that we can draw on to think about what is a, a good, prudent immigration policy? Is it tough or is it less tough? Of course, you can define those in different ways, but I would say generally speaking, uh, there's a few biblical principles that really guide me as I think about that. Starting with this idea that human beings, including every immigrant, are made in the image of God. God in Genesis chapter one, we see that God makes both man and woman in his image, and Christians have historically understood that to mean that human beings have this inherent dignity that is worth respecting. Now that doesn't mean the U.S. government must have a policy that everyone can come to this country. Uh, what it does mean is, as Christians, we should be encouraging our government to treat everyone humanely in a way that recognizes their dignity, even when the policy of the government is, means that they're going to have to be sent back to a different country. A second dynamic of that image of God is that we should have, I think, err on the side of wanting to protect human life. So that's why if tougher immigration laws mean let's roll back uh, helping refugees who are fleeing a credible fear of persecution, or those seeking asylum because they say that they're fleeing a risk of death in their country of origin, uh, I would become very concerned with that. I think we should err on wanting to respect human life, whether that's unborn life or born life, whether that's of any nationality, any religious tradition, um, human life is, has dignity and is worth protecting. One other dynamic of being made in the image of God is we believe that human beings are made in the image of a creator with this mandate to, to uh, be fruitful and multiply. And you know, sometimes when we talk about immigration, the focus is on, well, what are those people going to take? What are they going to receive? Those are fair questions for a society, but they're really only fair questions if we're concurrently asking the question of what are they going to contribute as people made in the image of God. And the reality is if you talk to economists, the vast majority of economists have a very warm view of immigration. They tend to think that it's good not only for immigrants, but for the U.S. society as a whole. In fact, even if you get to the most complicated and controversial category of immigration, which is illegal immigration, the Wall Street Journal surveyed economists a few years back and found that 96% of economists said that the net economic impact of illegal immigration was positive for the United States. Now, that's not to say there are not costs. There are. Uh, but we make a mistake if we only add up the costs and don't do what good economists do, which is also add up the contributions. So my general view on immigration is not that we should have unlimited immigration, but we should have a, a more generous approach, at least towards legal migration. Um, 
Another biblical principle that I think comes into play here is God actually has some immigration laws for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, I would be very careful to say, I don't think that God intended those for the United States of America. And I don't think we should take the book of Deuteronomy and just turn it into U.S. code. But I do think that there's some principles, some, some things that we can learn about the character of God from what we see of God's treatment of, of vulnerable sojourners, strangers in the Old Testament. Um, starting with this principle of equal justice under the law. We see in Exodus 12 and el elsewhere, as God gives the law to the Israelites, he repeatedly says the same law applies to the sojourner who resides among you and to the native born. And that's a principle that I think is worth considering that has positive and negative ramifications. Uh, it meant that immigrants, sojourners received a Sabbath day rest and fair treatment as laborers. It also meant that if you committed a crime, if you violated the law, there was penalties. And that implies a certain element of, of integration into society that's appropriate. But then the, the other part of the Old Testament law is that God repeatedly uh, mentions the, the sojourner, the stranger, the immigrant, depending on which English translation you're, you're reading, alongside the fatherless and the widow as these groups of people who were uniquely vulnerable. Uh, and even to the point of establishing laws for the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 24, God says, you know, go through your crops one time, leave what remains for the the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner. So there was this idea of a, a system to ensure that these particularly vulnerable, usually landless people could have their most basic needs for sustenance met. Not by handout, they still had to go do some work, but God was looking out for those who are vulnerable. And I think that's a principle that we can encourage our government to consider as well. You know, I think we should certainly prefer for that to be a, an immigration that is lawful as opposed to unlawful. And that goes to what I would say is my last point biblically, is the idea that God has ordained government. And we see that most clearly in Romans chapter 13, where we see Paul writes to the church in Rome that government has been established by God. The governing authorities says, do not bear the sword without reason. And that's why, as a Christian, I don't think we have the option um, to simply ignore laws that we don't like. Um, we do have the option in a democratic form of government to peacefully try to change laws that we think are not functioning well. And we do that at World Relief and our partners with the Evangelical Immigration Table. Uh, but we can't just simply throw our hands up in the air and ignore laws because God has established government. That's one reason, for example, that um, we've always maintained at World Relief that it's appropriate to expect our government to have secure borders, to do what is reasonably possible to know who's coming into the country, and to do everything reasonably possible to keep out anyone who'd be seeking to do harm. Now, that doesn't mean every border security proposal is prudent or efficient or a good use of resources, uh, but I think it is a, it's a fair expectation on government. I don't think that's a harsh immigration policy to say, we have a border that it's our, our government's job to respect. And also, of course, a secure border is not the same as a closed border that no one ever crosses. That's not a realistic possibility in a globalized world. The other dynamic of respecting the rule of law is that we have roughly 11 million immigrants who are unlawfully present in the country. Uh, that's only about a quarter of the immigrants in the country, and that's worth observing. Um, but that's why, as, as an evangelical Christian, I don't think that we should have an, an amnesty policy that says you broke the law, but it's forgiven and forgotten. Amnesty is from the same Greek root word as amnesia. You know, we're just going to ignore that violation of law. Um, we've held that position at World Relief for a long time. On the other hand, I don't think that it's either humane or respecting this other uh, institution that God has established, the family, to just round up 11 million people and deport them, especially when you think about millions of U.S.-born kids who, under U.S. law, cannot be deported. Um, so what we've proposed for a long time, and actually John Piper proposed this years ago, is he said there needs to be a way to both honor the law and show compassion to immigrants. And what Piper proposed was have them pay a fine, a penalty. Uh, that's what we've proposed as well. We've called that a restitution-based immigration reform. So not an amnesty that says the law doesn't matter, but a way to come forward, acknowledge a violation of law, 
pay a, a significant fine as a consequence for that violation of law, whether that was crossing a border unlawfully or about half those 11 million people overstayed a temporary visa, and then have the opportunity to earn permanent legal status over the course of time if you're willing to you know, meet reasonable requirements. If you pair that with making it easier to immigrate legally, and a lot of our challenges, I think, are a result of a, a really archaic immigration system that hasn't been updated in terms of quotas since about 1990, and with real good faith efforts to, to keep people from immigrating unlawfully. Uh, I think, you know, you, so is that a tough immigration policy? Some people who think we should have open borders and amnesty would say, that's too tough. Is it a, uh, too loose of an immigration policy? Some people who would say, seal off the borders and cut legal immigration would say that perhaps. I think it both honors the law and is compassionate to vulnerable people and, and to the idea of keeping families together. And lastly, I'd say that's important in part because it's also a way for us as the church to convey to immigrants, some of whom are already brothers and sisters in Christ, but many of others whom are not, that we care about them, that we care about their well-being. And that has a profound impact when we think about the, the credibility of the gospel that we proclaim. Well, I appreciate that. And just to, to clarify, you obviously want lawful immigration. You want secure borders, but you would be open for open want, with secure borders, opening them for more immigrants. More, not unlimited, but I think we should have more. I think it would be in our national interest and in the interest of a lot of vulnerable people to have greater lawful migration. Okay, thank you. And in a variety of categories, like refugees, but also employer-sponsored immigrants, family reunification. Appreciate it. Well, we're gonna dive more into that in a little bit. Darren, what's your perspective? Well, again, also thank you for having me here. Um, I want to focus on, on one word that I think a lot of this centers around, and that word is home. People want a home. Um, and, and what is a home? A home is a place where you can um, take your hat off, be yourself, uh, where you can laugh and cry, you can experience life together, experience life with your families. But when we think about what makes a home, well, part of fundamentally what makes a home is your ability to close your windows, shut your doors, define your own personal space. My neighbor has their home, I have my home. But what makes it a home is the fact that it's my home. I have space that I um, have control over and I have boundaries that I can set. And when you carry that over into thinking about countries and nations, that defined space is defined by borders. And so that's why I would say that we need um, uh, um, tough borders, um, um, clearly defined borders and clearly defined laws on how to police those borders. Um, I want to contrast that with views and that there are some who do advocate open borders, that advocate that we need a borderless world, that would be better at, at being efficiencies and so forth. And I want to talk about that in a minute. Um, but I want to focus on, on what do borders do. Borders primarily do, um, they do a lot of things, but, but three things. One is they help you, as I've suggested, define your community. Right? And so um, when you define your community, you're, allowed, you're, you're able to, to set unique ways of customs and laws that, that define you as a people. Uh, my mom, uh, when she uh, um, was a young married uh, uh, woman and uh, my dad invited his uncle over, my uncle was uh, a bit of a character, and uh, my mom is uh, very meek and mild, a smile on her face, happy-go-lucky, non-confrontational kindergarten teacher, and my uncle comes over and he wants to light up a cigarette. And she, a uh, non-confrontational person, she just put her foot down and said, no, there's no smoking in my home. And he, he hemmed and hawed, and got, but he finally complied. And now the thing is, he, he was free to smoke a cigarette in his home. He was free to smoke a cigarette out of his home. But when he crossed that border into her home, it was going to be the rules that her and my father set and that he was going to adhere to. And I think um, 
we need to uh, remember that we, uh, as Americans, over 200 years have set up a home in this, in this, in this world. And that home has uh, uh, principles enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, it has laws enshrined in the Constitution. We have laws and customs and ways of behaving as Americans um, that, that we want to honor and we want to preserve that. And so we need to think about, but that can only be done if we have borders that we maintain. Secondly, I think um, once you have a community that's established, that community is set up for human flourishing. People want to flourish. And my great-grandmother, who immigrated from uh, southern Italy, Ceramonta, outside of, of Napoli, she came over, uh, raised a family in New York City, upstate New York, but she did it without her husband, who died um, tragically uh, upon arrival in the United States. And her version of human flourishing was having a garden. And, um, and when she later moved to California as an 80-year-old, she would call up um, her grandchildren and say, Perfuma, perfuma. And they would dutifully come over and they would unload a pile of manure and help fertilize her garden so she could grow her vegetables and grow her plants. That was her vision of human flourishing. My father-in-law, Vic, immigrated from the Philippines. And he came um, from a, a place where they lived outdoors a lot. Um, he didn't have shoes, a place of poverty. He came and found opportunity in flourishing in the United States like a lot of immigrants want to do. And he uh, brought his wife. He um, had three daughters, one of which I married, thankfully. And he also um, sponsored um, his extended family. Um, and so this idea of human flourishing, um, this is important. But again, it can only be done if we have borders that are clear, we have laws that are strictly enforced, and that allows people to flourish, and flourish in unique ways that America allows people to flourish. Lastly, um, borders allow us to have security. People need security. They need to be able to lay their head on their pillow at night and know that they're safe and they're protected from threats, either from foreign powers or individuals that are dangerous. They need to know that who's coming and going into our country is something that's going to contribute to the community and contribute to human flourishing and not something that's not. And so <clears throat> uh, it pains me when I, when I hear some Christians advocating for open borders, um, a borderless world, um, uh, or they um, advocate or they point out, they say that the Christian church is anti-immigrant. And I really don't think that's true. I don't think the Christian church is anti-immigrant. I think they are anti-chaos and they are anti-confusion. And um, the Cato Institute, who's very pro-immigration, um, had a study showing that um, when there's increased chaos at the border, then um, support for immigration laws go down. When there's um, peace and stability at the border, support for legal immigration goes up. And so when people see people um, maybe complaining and artfully about immigration, it's usually an indicator that things are not going well at the border and that they're not unhappy with immigration, because as I've pointed out, our nation is a country in many ways of immigrants. And every, almost every family has immigrant stories like the ones that I shared. Um, in terms of the Bible, it does call us to care for the sojourner, call for the immigrant. Um, and it does do that, and, uh, um, and so we are called to do that. But it also, the Bible does show that people, God has ordained different communities, different ethnicities, different nationalities, and those are to be respected. Israel has unique customs, has unique ways of um, of living and moving and breathing in the world that, that need to be honored. And, and so the, in the Old Testament it shows that other, other um, communities do as well. Remember in the book of Ruth, remember she comes, she says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And it's a picture, it's a beautiful picture of being integrated into a new community. And so we, we can't take that, that lightly. Um, the other thing I want to point out 
is this notion of a borderless world. I want to come back to that. Um, there are those that advocate. You can you know, look on the internet and just see people advocating for this and, and they promote this. And I want to caution us against that. One, as I've shown out, that's not within the larger biblical mandate that for this time there are going to be different peoples and there are going to be different communities and they have a right to define their way of governing themselves in, in their own way. Um, but a borderless world, I, I think if uh, Christians really think about it and think it through deeply, like, who's going to govern this borderless world? In human history, we basically have three ways that human beings have governed themselves, either in tribes and clans on one end, or on the other end on large empires ruled by um, distant elites. In the middle, we see the nation, uh, larger collections of peoples, um, but still closer to the communities that they're governing. I would advocate for us maintaining that middle posture. Um, in a globalized, borderless world, you're going to have either the chaos of the clans or you're going to have the uh, homogeneity of an empire. And again, I think the Bible counsels against this with the Tower of Babel, right? Uh, human beings were trying to create a world in which there were similarity in languages and customs and cultures, and, and God um, tore down the tower saying, no, there's going to be different people and they're going to have different customs and, and we're going to respect that. I think in a globalized world, I'm concerned about um, an elite that doesn't respect the, the, the differences that people have naturally. I also think in a globalized world uh, where there's no borders, I would say border, borderless, not necessarily globalized, but borderless, but there is some relationship there. But a borderless world, um, I'm concerned about the dignity of the human person. Human beings tend to become economic units. They, become, they uh, tend to be depersonalized. Borders are the way that we can uh, express our uniqueness, express concern for the Imago Dei. Um, and moving towards a borderless world is, is not something that we should move toward. Christians should, while they may be trying to love their neighbor by um, advocating against borders or border enforcement, um, I think moving us in a direction where there aren't borders, where there aren't rules, where there aren't um, sustained communities in that way is, is a mistake. Just to summarize, God has given us borders and communities. They provide us, we're able to create our communities, we're enabled to engage in human flourishing, we're enabled to provide security, and that helps us have a home, a place that we can call our own, even in a communal sense. And that can be our home until God, God calls us in His divine providence to our eternal home. Thank you. All right, well, I'm going to start out with maybe my most divisive question. Immigration, while it's been a conversation for a long time, seemed to be more of a household conversation during the Trump administration and those elections and his America First policy. What would you two say? This is a question for both of you. I'll start with you, Matthew. Um, what would you say were the pros and the cons of Trump's America's First policy as it pertains to immigration? You know, I think, first of all, I think every country is going to put their own interests and the interests of their citizens first. So on that level, I think that's just sort of rational. And I mean, anyone who's trying to win elections in the United States probably should be more concerned about the views of voters who are allowed to vote in the United States than about people halfway around the world. I think that's, you know, reasonable. I do think, though, the role of the state is that I don't know as Christians that I can get on board with that idea. I mean, it I was just reading in Luke 4 this morning, actually, and Jesus goes into his hometown of Nazareth, and they're just enthralled with his message. You know, like, it's like, who is this guy? He's amazing. And then he has to, you know, from their perspective, ruin things by mentioning God's love for people beyond the people of, of Israel, by talking about, 
in the Old Testament how God had gone out of his way to care for people outside of Israel. And a few verses later, they're trying to throw him off a cliff. It would have been easier to just go Nazareth, Nazareth first, but Jesus' vision is, is bigger than that, than that. So I do think there may be a difference. I mean, I think it's understandable and appropriate that a, an elected official is going to prioritize the interests of the United States. I don't know that as a Christian I can, I can justify um, you know, a, a prioritization of those who happen to be, have been born in the same country. Um, I, I think there is a biblical argument, maybe Galatians 6, for prioritizing the concerns of those who share our faith, who are part of the family of God, you know, to, be, to seek the good of all people, but especially those belonging to the family of believers. Um, and again, I wouldn't say that's a state role. I wouldn't support the government saying we're going to prioritize people of one religion. But it is part of why I think Christians should be concerned about persecuted Christians. That's where I would say I have a lot of concerns, maybe less with like the, the language of America first, but with the outcomes of those policies under the Trump administration. For example, President Trump came into office one week into office. He um, put a, an executive action that restricted refugee resettlement, put a moratorium on refugee resettlement. And I remember talking to reporters, uh, I was actually in D.C. when that happened, um, and you know, working through what the executive order would mean. He talked a lot about a Muslim ban in, during the campaign, which we were not supportive of at World Relief. We think that Muslims are made in the image of God and they're neighbors whom we're called to love, and we shouldn't have a test that says people of one religion are not welcome in this country. Frankly, it's also closing off an incredible missional opportunity for the American church. But the effects of closing down all refugee resettlement actually probably affected more persecuted Christians than did persecuted Muslims because um, it shut down refugee resettlement altogether, at least for a time. And over the course of four years, we saw refugee resettlement decline dramatically. Again, this is a lawful form of migration. These are people identified by the U.S. government because they have fled a credible fear of persecution on account of specific reasons, race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. Uh, World Relief worked with Open Doors USA, and we actually looked in 2020 at, well, what has been the effect on Christian refugees from the particular countries uh, where Open Doors says Christians face the most severe persecution in the world? Their world watch list, it's, you know, it's, it's Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, North Korea, Burma, some of the countries you'd expect. We went as a country from taking more than 18,000 Christian refugees from those 50 countries, Christians of, of any Christian uh, tradition, down to, declined by about 90% over the course of five years. And I really feel that that is an, an effect of this America First idea that meant the United States closed its doors on the persecuted church and on persecuted people of other faiths whose views of, of Jesus are impacted by the response of, of a nation that many people rightly or wrongly view as a Christian nation. Um, so my biggest concern with a lot of those policies is actually the witness uh, that it has for people outside the United States. And, it, you know, it's absolutely true that there's amazing churches who are not anti-immigrant, who are very eager to welcome people. We also did see public opinion surveys in 2018 that the percentage of, of white evangelicals, which is my category, so I'm not picking on them, but don't, of the percentage of white evangelicals who wanted, who said that the U.S. should has a responsibility to take refugees, declined to about 25 percent. That was kind of a gut punch to me because I mean I think that this is a proud part of our nation's history, and the good news is it's back up. I mean, and whether that's because of Afghanistan or Ukraine or. People have been reading their Bibles more. I don't know for sure, but it's 68% of white evangelicals wow, now. Wow, it's a big jump. Huge jump in four years. Uh, and frankly, I think it's partially because President Trump isn't president and isn't on Twitter and isn't saying some things that were untrue about particular categories of refugees and about the vetting process that exists and has existed for a long time for refugee resettlement. Well, thanks. Darren, same question. Um, in terms of uh, Trump and... Amer specifically, um, his America First policy and yeah. its implications, immigration yeah. pros and cons. Right. Well, I, I think, I would, I would say, controversy about immigration did not start with Donald Trump. 
And I would say that Donald Trump and his campaign and his, his rhetoric about um, immigration and refugees and so forth, um, regardless of how inartful it may have been at times, it was responding to an angst, as I suggested earlier, in the American people about our government's inability and sometimes unwillingness to deal with immigration in um, consistent and fair ways. And so I wouldn't lay all of that on him. He was responding to um, movements um, within the American electorate that were expressing disinterest, uh, not disinterest, disappointment in how our government was handling immigration for years. I remember in grad school in the mid-90s, I was studying immigration a little bit and there was controversy over how to handle it. There was controversy over Reagan's immigration laws and before that, the Bracero program. And this is an ongoing issue and it has become, you know, it's a, you know, a, a political football of sorts. So Donald Trump was more seizing on the discontent of the confusion and the chaos surrounding the borders. And so that, that's kind of how I took his view. Now, again, we, people could debate how artful he was about how going about that, but I don't think he was stirring things up. He was responding to, um, well, okay, I should, stirring things up, you can, depends on how you interpret that, but he, he was responding to discontent that was already there, and it was discontent um, tied to um, the, the government's inability to deal with this and um, protect our borders and who we are as a people in an orderly fashion. Thanks. Matthew, you made the case that the U.S. economy would have a net positive from immigration, both legal and illegal. I understand you're not supporting Ill the illegal immigration. But one of the arguments that I hear against immigration is that these people are going to take our jobs, particularly the illegal immigrants. So how do you respond to that claim, given what you're saying? Sure. Yeah, it's a, very, a lot of Americans believe that to be true, although I will say um, in the polling, the number of Americans who believe that to be true has gone down really significantly. Uh, in part, I think that's because most of us have been to a restaurant recently that's closed two nights a week because there's not enough of a wait staff or a, a kitchen staff. There's, last I read, about five million more jobs in this economy than there are people who say they're looking for work, mm -hmm. which is a particular time for me that it would make sense to have, uh, again, don't open up the border without regulation, but have more visas available for those seeking to fill a job, whether that's in agriculture or restaurants or at the high skill end of you know, doctors and nurses and some of the other real shortages in our economy. Um, I think that's a place to start, would be matching the needs, the self-interest of the United States with vulnerable people who are looking for opportunities. Um, but I would say, even at a normal time, you know, that's sort of a simplistic view of the economics of immigration, that, well, there's 10, uh, 10 jobs in the economy. If you give one to an immigrant, there's one less job for an American. Economists think that it's a lot more complicated than that for a bunch of reasons. One of those is not all jobs are the same. That is to say, there's complementarity in, in labor. So um, an example of this, I was at a church in Iowa a while back and talked to a, a dairy farmer. He owns a dairy farm. And he said, you know, I'd be very happy to hire American citizens, Iowans, to milk cows. I've tried to, in fact. But they're not applying. Meanwhile, a lot of Central Americans are. And because they're willing to milk cows, which is a hard job, and he said, by the way, I'm paying them well. You know, I, I want to pay people well, treat them well. I still have my job running a dairy. And not only that, but there's the ice cream factory down the highway, which is where most of our milk goes. And people have a job in that ice cream factory because somebody's willing to milk a cow. And then you can think about the truck drivers. You can think about at various levels of the economy. Um, it's not that we have one set number of jobs that are simply replaceable with one another. It, it's also true that immigrants are not just taking jobs or, you know, that might be a derogatory way to talk about accepting employment. 
Uh, whether they're lawfully present or not, the reality is this does happen. People are working. And in fact, those who are unauthorized, and again, I'm not condoning this, but they work at a higher, they have a higher labor participation rate than those who are lawfully present because there's no social safety net that they're going to benefit from, or very little. Uh, but they're not just taking those jobs, they're also adding to the whole of the US economy. They're buying groceries, they're buying smartphones and cars and paying rent and buying houses even, and all that goes back into the US economy. The reality is if we didn't have immigration in the United States and with birth rates as we have them, we would have a, a declining population very likely. And we can see in a country like Japan what that does to an economy. It's very difficult to sustain a growing economy with a shrinking population. Not just Japan, but you can find certain states in the United States where they have a similar problem. And interestingly, it's often immigrants who've moved into sort of dying towns in the Rust Belt that are reviving it, creating businesses by creating the consumption base as well. So uh, again, all that goes back to, in my mind to this idea that people are made in the image of God. And we should care for vulnerable people because they have dignity, but we should also then not be surprised when they have something to contribute. I mean, even, you know, we talk about taking jobs, 44% of the Fortune 500 companies in this country were founded by an immigrant or their child. I mean, there's all sorts of American jobs that wouldn't be American jobs, might not be jobs at all, was, were it not for our country's heritage of immigration. And that's not to say that we shouldn't have some expectation of integration into society. I think it's people who come and who want to embrace the values of our constitution, of the core values of our nation, and that's part of what makes that economic poss growth possible. And so I certainly agree on that. Uh, but I, I think that the idea of these people are taking our jobs, it, it, you know, it, uh, we don't necessarily say that one like, oh, people from Wisconsin moved to Illinois. We only say it from people from outside of our national boundaries. But economists don't tend to, to take that view. All right, that's helpful. Uh, Matthew mentioned, Darren, two specific opportunities for the church with increased immigration. Now, both of you admit that the church and the government were different things, but from a Christian standpoint, he mentioned the gospel opportunity in the terms of the Great Commission opportunity. So unbelievers coming in who are, would have an increased opportunity to hear the gospel, but also an opportunity in terms of as, as tens of millions of people are leaving the church today. Uh, we call it the great de-churching happening all around us. The gospel opportunity in the reality that a lot of the people who want to immigrate are coming from the global south and bring with them Orthodox Christianity that could be an infusion to the church in America. Do you think that those two gospel opportunities should compel the average American Christian to want more immigration? Again, we're all arguing for secure, not open yeah. borders, but yeah. more immigration into our country today. I think they can be. I think I, I find little to disagree with in those two points. Um, and I think that's true. And we should look for gospel opportunities in, in any situation. But I think often when we talk about immigration, it's glossed over. It does focus you on the economics or it focuses on, um, on kind of the, the church's role in spreading the gospel or, or nurturing immigrant. And so I don't have an issue with that. What I do have an issue with is often the conversation ignores people who do have concerns about um, the real impact of uncontrolled and unlimited immigration. I know um, you're not calling for that, but there are people who, who are. And when people object to that or want some kind of um, more um, control over the process, or they want that process to be more, or more orderly, then they get pushback. Uh, they're called names. They're called extremists. And I think that's unfortunate is that um, people have a hard time expressing concerns over the instability that happens with an uncontrolled immigration process. Um, and people come here um, 
for a certain type of community. They come here for the culture and the laws that have been built up over the years and the customs and the people. And, and sure, it changes as new immigrants come. They contribute new elements to the culture, but that's built upon the traditional American culture that exists. I was talking to um, a, a man um, in our community uh, there in Southern California where there's obviously a lot of immigrants and he had recently come within eight months from Venezuela and he appreciated the stability the United, had, the United States had um, in contrast to Venezuela. And so, um, but I think there's not, when people try to have the conversation, well, how do we sustain that community? How do we sustain uh, the values, the principles that built this country and made it great? Then they're called, that, that can't have that conversation. And you can't have it connected to immigration because that, then maybe you're a racist or maybe you're insensitive to other cultures. And so I'm just concerned about shutting off parts of the conversation that do have to do with, it, it is a real concern. When you have unlimited immigration, um, what does happen to the culture long-term? And if you don't have an eye towards that, if it's only towards economics, or what, even if people are contributing economically, do they love this country? Do they love its traditions? Do they want to be here? You know, there's, as we said, there's millions of people that have come here for the principles, the culture that's been built. Are they going to come and sustain that? Um, and, and so we've been certainly focusing on the United States, but I have colleagues, I have a good colleague at, um, at Biola from Switzerland who wrote, a, a Marcus Zender, he's written a, a wonderful book on immigration. And he's in Europe, he says, look, Europe is dealing with a similar thing. Um, and they're very concerned about what impact does this have on our traditional culture? And if people are gonna come in, how do we integrate them in? Like the book, book of Ruth says, are they going to, um, be part of the culture that exists or that you want to come and, and make something different or be indifferent to that. And so, yeah, those are some of the concerns I have. Well, I want to pull on that thread a little bit. Yeah. I think uh, your Venezuelan friend yes. valued the stability yes. of this country. And, and you raise in that context the, the issue of, um, of how much they should assimilate into our culture. What, right. what expectations should we have of assimilation when someone immigrates into this country? Obviously, language would be, I guess, a, yeah. a first barrier to pass. What, what, what else should we expect? We used to, our immigration system used to have some signifiers or some requirements that you were coming here and you were going to, to integrate into the culture. As I suggested earlier, my, my father's family came from Italy. None of us speak Italian because they, they thought that, the, I mean, uh, tragically so, I wish I did. But they, they saw that as, hey, we're going to integrate. We're going to be a part of that. Um, so language is one of them. But I think language generally takes care of itself if people are integrated in the community. They, if you want to have opportunities, the second generation learns to speak English and they, and they integrate. But the fact, I don't see enough concern, at least in the conversations with, as we integrate Im, um, immigrants, new immigrants into our society, how are we going to inculcate them into the principles of our country, the culture that we have, um, are they going to learn about our system of government in ways that is meaningful? Um, and, and that might deal with larger cultural issues where that's just not in vogue right now to, to talk about our country's history and, and the resources that are there and, and how that it can, can, can lead to an increasingly vibrant society. So it, it's, it's more of kind of an ethos and, 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 and building that ethos into how we welcome people. And oftentimes that conversation is cut off and it's not allowed to happen. Again, for some of the reasons I mentioned, it's seen as too, too harsh to even bring that up. It always has to be welcoming, but, not, but welcoming without any responsibilities on, on the coming in. 
Thanks. You know, do you can want I to just add? To, yeah. You know, I think one of there's a lot of agreement here. Obviously, I think one of some of the differences is the different seats we sit in. Uh, you know, Darren's coming from an academic setting. In my observation, I mean, I go to churches all the time. I go to a lot of immigrant churches as well. I hear very few advocates for open borders and unlimited immigration. If you look at public polling, there's very few Americans who are advocating that position. If you talk to Republicans or Democrats in Congress, good luck finding one who will say that we should have a borderless world. That is just not a position that is mainstream in any way in the United States. It might be mainstream in like the political science department at Harvard. And I think that's, you know, that's the distinction is I'm working with, you know, people who are not necessarily thinking about this theoretically question of like, do we, you know, are borders real? Most of the immigrants in my church are like, well, I crossed one well, lawfully or not, you know, but like it was real. And there's, you know, whether, you know, it's a fair question. How do you secure a border in a humane way? Those are good questions. I think a lot of the questions around the border right now are actually confusion about our asylum process. So it's, I mean, you see this even, you know, there's been things in the news in recent weeks and months of, well, there are people are being bussed or, or flown to different parts of the country from the southern border, especially from Texas or Arizona. Uh, the reality is those people get described as people who are here illegally. Well, some of them crossed the border illegally, but then they also sought asylum lawfully under the terms of Section 208 of our asylum laws, or our immigration laws, the Immigration Nationality Act, which says explicitly you can request asylum whether you enter at a lawful port of entry or not. Now, we could debate whether that should be the law, but it is the law. So those Venezuelans, and right now the people being bust are largely Venezuelans. In recent years, uh, you know, more than three quarters of Venezuelans who have finished their asylum cases, which can take several years, have won their cases because what they're fleeing in Venezuela, tragically, is horrific oppression by a horrific government. Um, but until they have their final disposition on their immigration court case, they're not unlawfully present in the country. They're in this limbo status. They're also not authorized to work, which is a huge challenge because some of them do end up working unlawfully because they're also not eligible for, you know, much, they're not, the, the U.S. government's not going to buy them an apartment the way they might for a resettled refugee identified overseas pay for a couple months of rent when they first arrive. But I think a lot of the, the f tension and fears that a lot of Americans, including a lot of Christians, have specifically around the border are based on some some very complicated laws that are not very well understood by most Americans. And I do think, I mean, this is where I would maybe not be quite as charitable to President Trump. I don't, yes, he's, he's re reading a, a sentiment among a lot of Americans, but he's also exacerbating it. He's telling you that Mexico is sending you rapists and criminals, and maybe there's good people. You would get the sense from that, that comment that maybe the good people are 20%. The reality, of course, is a very, very, very small percentage of immigrants are committing any sort of violent crime. In fact, uh, the state of Texas happens to be the only state that tracks the, the immigration legal status of criminal convictions. They find that unlawfully present immigrants commit crime at significantly lower rates than native-born U.S. citizens. And I'm not saying that so that we would be afraid of our native-born U.S. citizen neighbors. Uh, just to say, it's, I think that a lot of Americans have an irrational fear of immigrants, especially maybe immigrants who are unlawfully present. And again, I think that there should be a penalty for that violation of law. I don't think it's fair to presume that they're somehow uniquely uh, a dangerous category of people. But to be, I also think we should have secure borders. We should have not let them in unlawfully. Or what's actually much equally common is they came in on a temporary visa and overstayed. And that gets a lot less attention because it doesn't make for as good a B-roll on the cable news to have someone walking through the CBP checkpoint at the airport as it does to see the border images. So you actually answered a question I was about to ask. And, and you hear people, when you talked about vulnerability, the helping the vulnerable. And there are people who say, well, when we let a bunch of immigrants in, we and our children become the vulnerable. We're the ones 
we should protect. And what you're saying is that's factually untrue. I mean, of course, a few immigrants have committed horrific crimes, and I'm all for if they ever should be let out of jail, deporting them. But they are less likely to do so statistically than native-born U.S. citizens. And I'm also not saying that's because they're all more virtuous, though they are, uh, by some studies, more likely to be Christian than the average American. Um, but I think it's probably about the consequences at play. If you commit a crime, even as a lawfully present immigrant with your green card, fairly minor crime, you stole a candy bar in certain states, that can be a deportable offense under our immigration laws. Whereas if I'm a citizen, I commit the same crime, I deal with the criminal justice system, but I don't have the risk of being uprooted from my entire life. And so we see that immigrants, um, they tend to avoid law enforcement, especially those who are unlawfully present, but even those who are lawfully present, which is, it's good to avoid crime. That's a benefit to society. What's not good is when they're also disproportionately likely to be victims of crime. And that is often because when they're victims, they don't call the police. When they're witnesses to crime, they're less likely to call the police. Um, and that speaks to the dysfunction of a system that has, as, as you said, Darren, I mean, this is not a new problem. We have had a, a policy on immigration that has involved a lot of burying our heads in the sand, relying upon immigrants coming in and meeting important labor needs in our economy for decades. This doesn't start with President Trump. It doesn't start with President Obama. didn't start with President Biden either. These dynamics are longstanding. And in fact, the borders are far more secure by a lot of measures now than they were in 2000. I mean, we just had a record number of encounters at the U.S.-Mexico border, but that means the Customs and Border Protection was interacting with someone. And in, they either turned them back, that happened in roughly half the cases in the last year, or they determined that they had a right to pursue an asylum case or some other immigration court case, and they were allowed in the country, or they were detained, sometimes for many months. Um, but the, their best estimates, we don't have current data, but as of a few years ago, the last several years under Trump and under Biden, uh, has been roughly 80% of people trying to cross the border unlawfully are being interdicted. That is to say, they're either caught or they're turned back away. Um, if you go back to 2000, according to the Department of Homeland Security, at that point, they thought that it was you know, less than 50% of people who were being caught. So the number of people who crossed the border unlawfully was far higher 20, 25 years ago than it is today. But we still had several hundred thousand people who probably did cross surreptitiously in the last year. And I don't think that's acceptable. I think we ought to do things to improve that situation. One of the best things we could do is be to have a more functional legal migration system. So the vast majority of people who, what they want is come fill a job that we desperately need them to do, could go to the US consulate in their country of origin, pay far less than they would pay to a smuggler to get them all the way to the border, and come in after going through some reasonable screening, come in on an airplane. And the lack of will to do that is part of the frustration with, this is a congressional question, they didn't need to do that. Uh, but to me, that's at the root of a lot of the problems that we have. So really briefly, you also talked about the confusion about our laws. One thing I hear is we have the, the easiest laws, the most open laws of any country on earth. Why would, why would people want more of us? Is it, how, how, and I have to ask briefly, but like, yeah. is it a hard process or is it a confusing process? Can it's an you... incredibly hard process. I mean, my background is in immigration okay. law. Um, it wasn't a hard process when my ancestors came in the 1850s. And I think that's the, the idea that a lot of Americans still have in our head. Uh, we had no federal immigration laws in the 1850s. Uh, now, Americans, I think, tend to think, well, I have a blue passport and I go through the process of getting the visa before I go to a different country. Why don't they? Mm. Some, most of the time, it's because uh, your eligibility for certainly an immigrant visa, but even for that tourist visa, if you're not fairly wealthy by a global standard, you're probably ineligible for that visa. Um, and yet, if you manage to get here other than lawfully, you'll be in a job within a week, unlawfully. Well, Darren, a question I have, Matthew has been clear that if we could secure borders, he would want 
increased immigration, again, secure, legal immigration. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I, I think, yes. I mean, if, if we had secure borders and there was a political will to enforce the laws that we have, I think I would and many Americans would be open to um, legal, lawful immigration. Um, so yeah, that, that's not a question, but we don't have that. And uh, we could get into the political dynamics of why that isn't the case. Um, and there's um, guilty hands probably on both sides. It's, a, it's a, an adva advantageous political football for, for both parties in a lot of ways. Um, and, and so, yeah, but I do have a concern, I think, in terms of when we talk about the economic side of things, there's a danger of, I think part of the concern of people who are concerned about immigration is that there's just a focus on the immigrant, uh, on the um, economics of it. That there are, um, in, uh, at least on the Republican side of the debate, there was, this is part of the, the whole phenomenon, um, uh, whether Trump or just the, 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 the more conservative side of things, is that you had kind of what's often called Wall Street um, Republicans who are favored immigration because they see, um, not to un unfairly tag them, but they see immigrants as um, labor widgets that they can plug into businesses. Whereas other um, people on the conservative side of the aisle lived in communities maybe in Appalachia or in the middle of the country where they did see where they felt like they were being disadvantaged by immigration. And so you have that, that friction um, and, um, and so sometimes a focus on, hey, how, yeah, there's economic benefits to this, it's fine, but it doesn't address kind of the, uh, the culture anxieties that people have when they perceive things as not being under control, that there are things that, and when you try to get control or you try to put limits or you try to structure things, then, then you're accused of being insensitive. And so I think that's the concern. And so as Christians, we should be able to walk and chew gum. We should be able to have concern for not only the immigrant coming in, but also those in our own communities who are suffering and suffering under um, perhaps processes of globalization that are displacing their jobs, displacing, there's, there's people who um, the job has left where they live. I remember seeing one young man interviewed and it was somewhere, I think maybe in Kentucky or Ohio. And, and they were like, well, why don't you just move and, and get a new job? He's like, this is where I live. This is my family. This is my community. I can't just leave that. And, and so I think in the globalized world, um, a lot of us are like, well, just move. It's not a big deal. But for many people still in America and for centuries, it's like, no, your, your community is your community. You don't leave the community. You adapt to the changes within that community. And I think that part of the conversation often doesn't get doesn't, isn't had. And I think Christians rightly concerned with immigrants and refugees that's great, but often that's the only part of the conversation I hear. I don't hear about the people who are experiencing dislocation, dislocation because of the very processes that are driving people to our borders, this kind of globalized view of labor as kind of this uh, fungible commodity that you can just opt one in, one out. Well, let's, display, let's, let's move an American worker out, let's move another worker in. That's more of kind of an economic analysis that I think is leading to a lot of this. And I think that part of the conversation needs to be had as well so that's helpful you know one of the things that I I hear both of you talking about uh, we want the government to govern nobody say anything other than that here but there are those who say and I'm gonna direct this to you first there are those who say the more immigration we allow 
the more progressive or liberal our government becomes, undermining its ability to govern and then point to California as an example of that happening. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think most of the people who make that argument don't know that many immigrants. Like, I go to a Spanish-speaking church, and frankly, I think I'm fairly, at least theologically conservative, and often on some of my politics as well, but I have some people in my church who are way more conservative than I am. I mean, they fled Venezuela, and they see socialism in everything, like even the things that I think are actually not socialism. But, like, you know, if you're coming from that background, that's like a big red flag of anything of too much government involvement. Also, you know, if you talk about like, the pro-life issue, uh, Hispanic immigrants in particular, that's not all immigrants, but uh, whether they're Catholic, which is the traditional majority, although increasingly from Central America, it's nearly 50-50 Catholic and Protestant. Um, these are very pro-life communities who have very strong pro-life convictions. Um, and, you know, I think that that, you see that even, you mentioned this globally, not just in terms of politics, but theology. I mean, we have denominations in the United States that are staying true to biblical orthodoxy because of the Africans who are, you know, get a voting role in, in certain denominations. Um, and in other denominations, the Africans are a whole separate entity and they don't get a vote. And you don't see that same trend. Uh, uh, and that's not just Africa. It'd be Latin America, it'd be certain parts of Asia as well. Now, I think in terms of the politics, it is true. It becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think California is an example of that. Um, it used to be true that the Latino vote in California was fairly evenly split. And then Pete Wilson came in 1994 as governor and advanced a, a proposition and stood behind a proposition that was viewed by a lot of Hispanic immigrants and, frankly, their U.S.-born adult children who get to vote um, as really hostile to Hispanic immigrants in particular. The idea was if you're here illegally, we're not going to let you go to school. There already been Supreme Court precedent saying that, that you could go to school. Uh, but, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, eventually that that proposition never actually went into effect, but it was popular with a certain number of Californians. But the pushback to it a few years later is we have now seen Hispanic voters in California are much more progressive than Hispanic voters, for example, in Texas. Who did Texas have as their governor in the mid-90s? They had George W. Bush, who was very pro-immigrant as, as governor and as president. Um, he was advancing, I mean, the sort of Restitution-based immigration reform that we've supported at World Relief and the National Association of Evangelicals, the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and others have supported. They supported that when it was George Bush's proposal. They've supported it when it was Barack Obama's proposal. And frankly, they weren't very different. But President Bush, when he was governor, had that attitude in office as well. And uh, if you still look today, Hispanic voters in Texas vote really differently than Hispanic voters in California in a more conservative direction. And I think they may be imperiling that with some of the recent policies out of Texas, frankly. But I think that that is, it, it's, they didn't fall into the self-fulfilling prophecy of we better keep these people from ever becoming citizens because they might not vote for us. Yeah. To the contrary, Governor and then President Bush said, I think that these people, some of them are related to him, share a lot of my conservative values. Um, and to be really clear, I'm not, my job is not to help Republicans, not to help Democrats. <laughs> you know, I, like I have, I'm, I'm, equal, I'm upset with both of them as well in their terms of immigration policy. But I think it is, it's a misconception to think that that is sort of unnecessarily the trend that will happen if we have more people who are immigrants. Or sometimes that's the argument, well, let's let more immigrants, but don't ever let them become citizens because then you can vote. Um, they may end up not voting for you in the next generation because that seems like an awfully discriminatory policy that you know, turns them off. But if you embrace them, it turns out a lot of their values would be in line with a lot of conservative evangelical Christians. Darren, is there anything you'd want to add or disagree with that? Um, no, I think there's evidence that um, um, Latino voters are 
very conservative. And uh, I, one example, when, when um, oh, I forget the name of the proposition, but it's the gay marriage proposition in California. This is 10, 11, 12 years ago now. But I was looking at the data. Um, the proposition won um, um, to vote against gay marriage because of African-American and Latino voters. White voters supported gay marriage. Um, and so there, there, there's other evidences that these communities are very conservative in social ways, maybe economically less so. Um, and I think in, in Cal California is an interesting um, situation where you have kind of people in Palo Alto where the, the weather never gets below a certain degree voting on policies environmentally or otherwise that are disproportionately impacting people in the Central Valley who are crowding into Walmart because they don't have air conditioning at home. And these people end up voting for the same party on issues, but their interests are very divergent in a lot of ways, but those interests haven't been surfaced. And so I, I, I think, yeah, I'd be hard pressed to predict what Latino voters will do in California in the next 10 to 20 years or, or longer. Um, it may not always be that way. Right now, uh, California is reliably a blue state uh, and it will be for a foreseeable future, but you don't know what's gonna happen uh, because their interests are not necessarily always aligned. That's helpful. So I wanna land the plane with a question for both of you. Really, really practical. Let's say there's a pastor or church leaders out there and hypothetically, we find an illegal immigrant in our church worshiping. What responsibilities do you think that we have and what ways can we help that person as a church? Because this is really obviously happening all over the place. Would you like to start, Darren? Sure. Um, and the Bible's clear. We are to treat the sojourner and the immigrant with love, and love them as our neighbor. Um, and, and so as Christians, as the church, we are to reach out to them, we are to um, um, try to um, help them. Um, at the same token though, the government has a job, a legitimate, legitimate job to enforce the laws. And so the church shouldn't uh, stand in the way or advocate against the government enforcing the laws. And so um, one, I think it can be very consistent in terms of helping individuals that we see that are in need regardless of their nationality but still support the government enforcing the laws clearly and having strong borders and clear laws. I mean, those two things are not incompatible. And as I've suggested earlier, they actually, um, the, I think a well-policed border will lead to people being more open to immigration. We can debate numbers and this and that, and we may disagree on how high or how low, but I think um, uh, for pastors or people in the pews, they are to, to reach out, but that, that does not, but to be concerned about the larger policies and what the role of the government is enforcing the laws, um, and and it may mean on times to enforce the laws. Let's be clear, may mean deporting people. Um, uh, th those two things can we can walk and chew gum, yeah. um, and we can love the individual, but still support um, strong borders, which is a more loving way to create a community that people want to come to, a community that does love people, that creates space that that respects the human dignity of people. But you can't have that if you're constantly chipping away at the borders. And so I would just add real quickly, um, that's one thing, it's, it's one, I don't, you're right, I don't hear people saying, let's open the borders, but they do advocate policies and postures that chip away at maintaining a sound border and sound policies. And so it's one thing, yeah, I'm not open borders, but I don't support actually enforcing them. I don't support the measures that it really takes to have strong borders. And so that's my concern. And when you try to raise concern over that, then, then people 
call foul, and I, I don't think they should. Well, and one thing that has become clear to me just with interacting with you two, the word tougher. So some people mean more secure. Yeah. Some people mean more closed. And yeah. and you guys are at really helpfully defining those two very separate things. So when we talk about tough, we need to talk about whether we're we need to clarify, are we talking about secure or are we talking about closed? Because they're different things. Yeah, I want to go back to my home analogy. If people are like barging through my door, I'm going to close it yeah. until thing, there's some stability and status quo. And then I might be able, okay, you can come in, right? Um, uh, so when things are disorderly, people do, and they probably don't think it through, but they like, yeah, let's, let's shut it down until we get control of things. Let, let, like this is out of control. So when they have anxiety about uncontrolled border, immigration, uncontrolled immigration, unsustainable immigration, that's when they start to use words like closed. But I think most people, when things are calm, will say, yeah, we want healthy immigration from people who want to love our country and want to be here and contribute because that's been part of our history. It's the chaos that they're responding to. Thanks. Matthew, same question. You're talking to a pastor. Yeah. That's, it's not, telling, a hard, not a hard question for me because that's not a hypothetical. Yeah, I get you, this you interact a few times a week. Yeah. You know? I, I and, know it's not hypothetical. Um, and, it, you know, a lot of the immigrants in the World Relief Service have legal status. The refugees that come through the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program, they all have legal status. But we also empower churches to serve their vulnerable immigrant neighbors regardless. You know, we run English classes and we don't ask people about their legal status. But some of our teachers get to know their students well enough that they might know that they are unlawfully present. I've had neighbors who I know are unlawfully present. And honestly... When that literally, like, not just like a Luke 10, your neighbor in a very, very, you know, general sense, but like my next door neighbor at one point, oh, I figured out this very lovely lady who cooks me Mexican food is here illegally. Like, what do I think about that as a Christian? And what was really helpful for me was actually, you know, if I'm going to think biblically, of course, there's the love and welcome people, share the gospel with people. That all applies. There's no out to that. If there's a concern that people have, it's that back to Romans 13. Well, you should follow the law because the government is established by God. But here's the good news. The U.S. does not tell you that you can't be go over to your next door neighbor's house for dinner, even if you think that they're undocumented, and even if they are undocumented. It doesn't tell you as a church that you can't uh, share the gospel with someone. It doesn't tell you as a church that you can't run a food pantry or run an English class or teach someone Sunday school or let them teach Sunday school to you because uh, they may have some things to teach you about following Jesus. So long as, I would add the caveat, as long as you're not employing them, uh, as long as there's not compensation, that is where you hit the legal issue that, that churches do run into. It's complicated. But in terms of normal ministry interaction, we can be subject to the governing authorities and love and serve our immigrant neighbors. And by the way, that's another set of tougher immigration laws that I would pretty strongly oppose would be any proposal, and we've seen these proposals, but they haven't passed into law, that would actually have the government saying, you know, it is against the law to uh, provide uh, assistance to someone who is present unlawfully in the country, which could mean it's against the law for your church to run your English class. And some ad, some of the proponents pay of that for bill legal bills to yeah, become legal. Yeah, I mean, some of some people might say, well, that's not in you know that's what we went and we voted that, for that bill. But frankly, once you voted for that bill, it's up to a judge to decide what you meant. They don't come back to you to ask you what you meant. And we have been really concerned. Again, none of these have become law, but there's been a few bills that have passed one House of Congress over the years. Uh, some really concerning threats to religious liberty when you have the government taking the precedent of saying there's this category of people who the church is not allowed to serve. Well, guys, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the ways that you have thought through this issue. You both nuance it very well. You obviously are building this 
based on a, a, a value for people, a value of people made in the image of God, a value of the Bible. And I appreciate that you all give your time and your energies to this in, you know, in many different ways, whether it's teaching the next generation of people in the academy or at the grassroots or in Congress. I really do appreciate what you're doing. And I wanna thank you for joining us today. Well, and to all of you out there, we hope that this time has been helpful, profitable. We pray that the Lord would use it, uh, again, not just in an academic way, but in, at a heart level in your own local context, and that He would use you to be able to love our neighbors, whatever that looks like for you. Thanks for listening to today's bonus episode from the Good Faith Debates. Make sure to check out the next debate. It's ready for you right here on TGC Podcast. And to watch more videos from the debates and download free resources for further discussion with your staff or small group, visit goodfaithdebates.com.